All right, cats and kittens, we are back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the Brando Cast. Oh man, today round three with one of my favorite comedians, one of my favorite writers on the planet Earth. The last time I saw this gentleman in public, it was at a Vons, not a Johns, but a Vons, stealing his own joke. He is the sextabulous. As Janine Garofalo once called him, the sextabulous Blaine Capatch. Hi, that's me, sextabulous. You can call me sextab for short. I have to say, just for just for the hell of it, I was like, let's like let's watch some Blaine YouTube videos. Uh, there it is, nineteen ninety five. Janine Garofalo hosting some show where the powers of be were trying to rip off the alternative comedy scene. Oh, comedy but- product. <laughs> Wait, was that the show? It was a was it called Comedy Product? It's called Comedy Product. It was actually it was actually really cool. We did it at the old Sunset Gower. I met Maynard from Tool. I met Jack Black. Uh, I saw uh, 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 Dana Gould did a set. It was uh, uh, I had to wear Eben Schletter's shirt because uh, they wouldn't let me wear my shirt. <laughs> I had a, some sort of some sort of I think I had like uh, 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 Astro Boy on it or something. Well, the, the hilarious thing about that particular performance was you start the show basically by going like, I've only lived in L.A. for a few months. Oh, yeah. And you're like, people aren't, I've realized that people aren't looking at me. They're looking with me. <laughs> but oh, okay. it's like, oh. I just I just wanted to time travel back to that guy and be like, it's okay. You did you did all right. <laughs> wow. I haven't, I haven't seen an old set of mine in a long time. I don't like looking at tapes of myself. Yeah, understood. My my only experience in my professional life at Sunset Gower, for, uh, besides from being uh, a PA on all the bullshit kind of MTV shows they used to shoot on that horrible lot, um, I did an episode of the Dating Game in 1998. Ooh. Jesus, was that with was that with who was that the host of that? Woolery, Woolery. Hey, so I'll tell you the hilarious thing about that: you're sequestered in a room. Deep inside Sunset Gower somewhere, I don't even remember where, with the other two dudes, because I was on the panel. I wasn't The Bachelor. I was uh, among the group that the young lady was going to pick. And I was basically sequestered with two personal trainers for, oh, I don't know, 11 to 12 hours for that day, because we were, we were the last show to tape during the day. And when we finally, you know, and, and I tried to be funny. I mean, me in 1998, insufferable, repped by Gersh, thought I was hilarious. I wasn't. <laughs> and so I tried to write all these jokey responses to the by question. Gersh. Yeah. Margaret, Sarah Raymaker and Margaret Bacon. Um, uh, <laughs> but they... Oh, there's, is it, I'm being shushed? Is there a child? Am I oh, waking no, no, up a child? I was, I was shush, shushing my, my child who's sitting in front of the air conditioner, but he's cold. Oh, I was hoping I didn't he's wake up cold. your child. <laughs> no, no, no. He's no, believe me, he's awake. Anyway, to wrap up this dumb story about me being on the dating game, uh, I thought I was hilarious, tried to write hilarious answers to all the questions that I could potentially be asked. They were thrown in the trash can. One of the fucking young writers just writes every answer and they tell you what to say. Woolery, 1998, he does not appear on the set until the camera is rolling. And then if he doesn't like something that he's reading off the cue cards, he just walked away. Wow. Okay, and that means he's that and, guy. He's that guy. And, and with no notes, no notes to tell his writing staff how to rewrite something that he's supposed to say. He just walks off and then they panic and rewrite things and then, you know, convince him to come back out when the camera is rolling. So he he uh, didn't meet him, didn't shake my hand, didn't say anything. I did not win. That day, Blaine, I did not win the dating game. I did not get to go to Reno uh, with a girl who picked a personal trainer over me. So uh, that's my Sunset Gara story. I think uh, I think the real winner here is you. <laughs> you know, uh, when I worked at Sunset Gower, we did the the Mad TV pilot there before it was built up now. And uh, uh, I remember going to a taping and I found my way up into the catwalks. You know how you always see the wooden catwalks way up up above? I go up there and I find this catwalk that goes back into these studios that hadn't been opened in years. And so there's like maybe bare light bulbs hanging down into these little chasms. And I'm going back these just dusty wooden catwalks and I get to these walls and there's graffiti like pen and pencil graffiti. And it's all from the 30s and 40s. 
from these guys. And it's like, you know, uh, uh, Big Tex LaRouche, whatever, just these <laughs> cowboy names. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and uh, Get Along and uh, uh, and Hia, stuff like that. Because they had, Sunset Gower was famous for making westerns back in the early days of Hollywood, which is why they call it Gower Gulch. Yes. And it was a just a crash course in Hollywood history. And I just, it just accidentally snuck up there to drink vodka out of a crystal geyser bottle <laughs> I found this unlocked you know unlocked a secret uh quest on the side i once worked uh, uh, uh i worked on a show at paramount and we shot on the stage uh the same cheers stage that they'd been on forever and uh I, we went hunting around one day because i was convinced that there was probably a vial of cocaine somewhere buried within stage 25 at paramount <laughs> from the 80s when I was uh, with White Trash Wins Lotto, we did an appearance on the Conan O'Brien show uh, back at the old, uh, when it was in 30 Rock. So we were in the old Letterman studio and we went down to get musical props because they said, don't bring anything. We'll give you all the stuff you need from props. So we go down to select our props and the prop guy goes, oh, you might want to take a look at this. And he moves some stuff off of this thing and he pulled un- uncovers this giant piano and the piano is covered in autographs like Ella Fitzgerald, uh, 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 Cab Calloway, Tom Jones, just uh, uh, this hunt, uh, hunt, dozens of signatures all over this dusty old piano that was covered with shit like radio uh, 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 Raiders of the Lost Ark style in a warehouse. It's covered with stuff. And they were like, yeah, it was a piano that was uh, in I guess it was in Rockefeller's apartment back in the 50s. He had a private uh, residence in 30 Rock, and the piano was there for a while. Whenever he would have parties, everybody would sign it. I guess it was just tucked away someplace. <laughs> you know, but I we, love... But we looked, looked at that when we were doing White Trash Wins Lotto. Well, r- real quick tangent. Um, could you explain for people uh, White Trash Wins the Lotto? Because that was one of my favorite live things back in the day. Shout out to Dave Gibbs. Uh, one of my favorite things. Could you explain for people listening outside the city of Los Angeles what White Trash Wins the Lotto was? Uh, White Trash Wins Lotto was a musical written by Andy Preboy, who was the the leader, uh, the front man of Wall of Voodoo after Stan Ridgeway left. And uh, Andy wrote these, uh, these sort of uh, Gilbert and Sullivan type songs about the rise and fall of Axl Rose as a cautionary tale. And it was all done as a musical with rapid fire lyrics about the music industry and the darkness of, of being a musician and the temptations of all everybody in the band and in the periphery. It was really amazing. And he built it up sort of as a work in progress at Largo. And he used comedians as all of the, the, the same. Well, yeah, it was comedians and musicians. And uh, so it's comics singing funny songs and singers uh, uh, singing funny songs. And uh, uh, it sort of, it, sort of snowballed rapidly and then fell apart very quickly. But it was uh, uh, just really, really insanely smart and uh, uh, unbelievably, unbelievably smart. Just a, a great uh, uh, commentary on how the music industry was and how it fucked over. Like the woman who discovered Guns N' Roses and uh, 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 and how Axel was just a kid from, you know, the cornfield who gets off the bus at the beginning, you know, with hay in his teeth. Just, that was amazing. Who I do not rem- I mean everything from that period of time in my life is a blur. Who played the Axel character? Do you remember? Well, Axel was played by a, a a Broadway singer named Brian Beacock. Uh <laughs> and he was an, originally played by this guy Stefan who uh, uh didn't work out. Nice guy. Uh but didn't work out. And uh after it sort of fell into place that Andy needed uh, somebody to be a better Axel, he got this Broadway singer with perfect white teeth to be Axel, who was way over the top showman guy. And the rest of us were just being, you know, just filling up whatever uh, parts we had to do. It was uh, uh, Paul F. Tompkins, Greg Barrett, Dave Foley, Laura Milligan, Karen Kilgariff, um, uh, 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 Mark Rivers, Craig Anton. Um, I, I'm just trying to think of uh, Tracy Denisi, uh, uh, Chrissy Guerrero, Rita D'Albert, just it, this cool, weird, eclectic cast of people who weren't really, you know, doing it for a living. Of, I, anyway, and, the songs were great. I got, I got to play Izzy. I got to <laughs> sing a song about getting my name Izzy. <laughs> it was, it was such a cool thing in the days before the internet and social media 
and waking up every day and trying to figure out how you're going to create something viral. It was just a wonderful, awesome thing of many things that have happened in yeah. Los Angeles. But I'm, I'm sorry if it was long winded, but it was like, no, yeah, we, it started it started in Largo and it just sort of it, it, it went to a sold out run at the Roxy a couple of times. And That's we, where uh, I we, saw it. We did it at Aspen. We had oxygen off stage and uh, it was insane. It was a lot of fun. And and. It, I, I, again, I can't. You saw it. You can't yeah. explain how how weird and intricate it was. Well, I always felt like Rock of Ages kind of ripped it off because White Trash wins the lotto happened before Rock of Ages. Yeah, you know, it's this. like there's there's uh, there's wrestling in every city. That's the way I look at Rock of Ages. It's like, oh, it's another show singing about rock and roll as a as a musical. Okay, that's it's, right. It, everybody's everybody's got a thing. It, but. Andy Preboy created it, and what a perfect goddamn segue into what I'm going to talk about with Mr. Kapach on this uh, first Monday in the month of August. We are going to talk about IRS records. IRS Records was a record label founded by Miles Copeland in 1979. Miles Copeland is Stuart Copeland's brother, and surprise, surprise, Miles managed Stuart's band, The Police. After finding great success with The Police, Copeland convinced AM Records co owner Jerry Moss to establish the IRS division in 1979. Her IRS stood for International Record Syndicate and produced some of the most popular bands of the 1980s. It was particularly known for issuing records by college rock, new wave, and alternative artists, including. R.E.M., The Go-Go's, The Alarm, The Bangles, The English Beat, General Public, Oingo Boingo, Fine Young Cannibals, and, as Blay mentioned, Wall of Voodoo. IRS releases were distributed by A&M until 1985, then by MCA Records until 1990, and by EMI until the label folded in May of 1996. So, of course, Wall of Voodoo. On this great uh, label, IRS Records... Um, when I asked Blaine what he wanted to talk about uh, on this episode of the Brando Cast, because it's round three for him, he threw out IRS Records, and God damn it, one of the best labels of all time. Blaine, tell me about your sort of love of the label and its music. Well, I think it's the only label, or maybe the last of the labels that you could kind of really trust like i guess like a sub pop sort of a thing or a rough trade where you look at the label and go well i don't know who this band is but this everything on this label is pretty good and uh and i started to notice that that was the label that all the stuff that i had was on and it wasn't chrysalis it wasn't warner brothers or any of those big ones but it was uh, uh when i was in a small town pennsylvania boy in the late 70s and not much was there without an internet or the, uh, you know, uh, MTV or any of that stuff. So, uh, uh, I was lucky to sort of bump into the police, the way the police happened and they were very exotic and wild to me and, uh, uh, still one of my all time favorite bands. I love them. They were a, a great band to get rescued by. And, uh, but I, uh, since every time I would try to find something out about them, like I said, there was no internet. So I would have to go seeking out articles or, or watch shows about them, and and I would get a little nugget, like I would see Stuart Copeland wearing an XTC shirt, so I'd get interested in XTC, or uh, uh, they would like they appeared on Erg Music War with all these other other uh, uh, bands and stuff, and uh, so they uh, uh, I love the Police so much that I ended up sort of getting back in reverse engineered into all these other bands that were on that label. And I found, you know, there was, there's Oingo Boingo and there's Wall of Voodoo and, you know, there's, oh, hey, there's the Cramps over there for some reason. But it's uh, 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 just a, a great little, it turned into a great sampler, a great Whitman sampler of all these bands that I ended up loving. And like, like the English beat, I got think I'm wearing it right now. He's got the classic it's, shirt. It's, yeah, I love, I love the English beat so much and I've seen them live and they make me happy. They're always smiling on stage and they're super tight. Just, just a, a blast and a, and a wonderful, a wonderful loop in life to know that that I grow up to to like stuff that still smiles. Now, will you drive out to the Canyon Club if Dave Wakeling from the English Beat is is doing a live show? Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. If yeah, if yeah, I don't want to. Let's let's pretend there's no COVID. 
But yeah, it's like, it, it, oh, uh, have a night off. Hey, honey, can I go see uh, Dave Wakeling from the English Beat out of the Canyon Club? Yes, get out. <laughs> be, be a no-blainer for my wife. Um, is San Juan Capistrano too far to drive for Dave Wakeling? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It kind of kind of depends. That, that Then you're sort of getting into uh, that, uh, my love of the English Beat uh, uh, in my 20s, bumping up into 50s-year-old me. Going, I don't know. By the time I get home, it's going to be like two thirty. Uh, but yeah, it's. I mean, I saw I saw English Beat at uh, at the at the the racetrack out off the one ten. I forget the Los Angeles horse racetrack. It was bizarre. Nobody was paying attention. Nobody just walking around drinking. I was I was loving the band. And I saw him at the House of Blues, which was a great place to see bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, gone, unfortunately. I saw him, uh, and I saw the beat open for Squeeze up at Universal uh, years ago. Before it became Harry Potter Land, of course. Yeah. I I saw land. Dave Wankling when he. I swear to God, that guy moved to like Hermosa Beach or Manhattan Beach or something because I, we saw him in this little tiny bar in Manhattan Beach. Um. What the I, fuck was it, it called? I, I don't remember, but I, I know that I saw him in like a bro bar in Manhattan Beach. And we drove <laughs> down there because, you know, I, I'm scared of Manhattan Beach. I, I'm not allowed. I'm too ugly to walk around Manhattan Beach. They have standards, yeah. <laughs> I only I only go there when the sun's down, so they have an excuse to have my shirt on. Because if, if you're at there in the daytime, they go, shirt off, bro! <laughs> if you don't take your shirt off, man, they burn you with cigarettes, and then, then you black out, and who knows where you wake up. It's usually in one of those tanks by the airport. <laughs> you will get beard in the face by a, by a bro, by an ex-jock, because they all live there. All kid, People just should know this. If you're coming to Southern California... And you weren't a jock in high school. Stay away from Manhattan Beach because you will get punched. Hey, it's a, you'll get jocked. But I did see Dave Wakeling there. We drove there because we braved getting a beard in the face by a bro uh, to see Dave Wakeling. They're amazing. All the artists on uh, IRS are amazing. I will say this to the kids listening out there, and and not to, to Blaine, that we had Miles Copeland on our Sirius XM show, Rock Tales with Ahmed Zampa. Uh, just a few months ago, because he has a new book coming out about the history of IRS records, I will say to you, Blaine, he was nothing but a delight. Wow. I bet. He was so... That guy uh, has lived the life. He has A million seen stories, I bet. A million. And he, but he was great, and he was gracious. But the one thing I'll say, and because it's pertinent to our conversation today, he basically said, I just wanted to start a record label for bands that I liked and bands that were never going to get a chance with a major label. Uh, all of the, so many of the artists that he signed have gone on to be fucking legendary bands. But at the time, they were mostly bands that people wanted no part of. Well, I remember, uh, I remember when REM happened, there was no REM. And then all of a sudden there was REM. And I associate the label, the, the, the hat silhouette on the label with listening to REM. And it's uh, uh, just an indelible link at this point. But then REM, of course, became the the U two of <laughs> the U two of the United States. Uh, uh, but you know, and, and it's and good for them, huzzah! And I and I saw I saw REM with the police uh, in Philadelphia live. It was amazing. And it's just the fact that the way the police and their label backed me into all that stuff just still blows my mind. And the like, especially XTC, which was the subject of our entire last show, it was because I love the police that I that I was ready to uh, to grab XTC the next time that that colored duck floated by in the little carnival. I'll grab that one. That's the prize. So it was, uh, uh, but the label was always a, a good warning. Like I said earlier, it just, uh, you would see it, you'd trust it. It's like, you know, it, it's like uh, 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 Tom Hanks. Oh, okay. This, he's a good actor. I trust Tom Hanks. It's quality control. Where, quality control. where was that show in Philadelphia? Was it at the spectrum? Was it police with REM at the spectrum? It was a, or? It was a JFK. It was, oh, it was it was REM. It was their first stadium show. Michael Stipe had hair. Uh, it was REM, Madness, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, and the Police. God damn it! Yeah, and Sting had his uh, his red hair from Dune. It was that whole synchronicity thing where they were wearing rags. They all looked like you know David Bowie voodoo dolls. Wow. Yeah, well, that's so that was you guys braved the the drive from York 
to Philly for, <laughs> for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I borrowed my dad's Cadillacs and six of us went down in my dad's big blue Cadillac. For real? Yeah, for real. Fun. <laughs> People were falling over from heat stroke because it was like 106 degrees. It was oh, I, I saw Live ridiculous. Aid. I saw Live Aid at JFK um, uh, with my dad. And they had two giant fire hoses uh, on the side of this of the stage, just sh- you know, shooting the the stadium because it was yeah. a hot, muggy uh, Philadelphia day. Well, we have kind of a a, a perfect segue to the first band that I'm going to throw at uh, Mr. Kopach. Document is the fifth studio album by American rock band REM, and it was released on August 31st. 1987 by IRS Records. The album includes the R.E.M. classics of The One I Love, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and Finest Work Song. Document was also R.E.M.'s first platinum album. Rolling Stone reviewer David Frick felt that the album was R.E.M.'s finest to that date and said the document is the sound of R.E.M. on the move. It is essentially the second biggest selling IRS Records in the history of that label, Documents. Hey, hi. You know what I like about uh, about Document by R.E.M. is that they do a cover of Strange by Wire, and I never knew it was a cover until I got Pink Flag on cassette in Wichita, Kansas. And I was listening to it on the way home and was like, oh my fucking God. And then just listened to it over and over and over for miles and miles and miles. That's fantastic. So. Uh, I have a list of uh, the records that uh, that IRS had the most success with, and as I said, Document was their second biggest record. But Beauty and the Beat is the debut album from the Go Go's. It was released in 1981 on the IRS Records label, and the album reached number one on the Billboard's charts in March of '82, bolstered by its two big hit singles, "Our Lips Are Sealed." We got the beat. The album stayed at the top for six consecutive weeks and ranked second in Billboard's year-end top 100 of 1982, right behind the debut album of Asia. The album sold in excess of 2 million copies and was certified double platinum very quickly, qualifying it as the most successful, one of the most successful debut albums of all time, Beauty and the Beat. Did you like the Go-Go's at all? Yeah, of course. I saw the Go-Go's at Hollywood Bowl with Sparks. <laughs> it was great. It was a great show. Are you kidding? I love the Go-Go's. Uh, well, I was hosting a, a, a talk show with Beth Lapidus uh, from Uncabaret, uh, and uh, Jane Weidland would come in and be, a, or Weidland, I always get it wrong, uh, 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 would come in and be the guest more than once, and it was always just like, oh my God, we just got Wait a second, Blaine. Blaine, Blaine, Blaine. Greg and I live next to Jane Weedlin. What do you think about that? I know you're right next to me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was always a thrill when Jane Weedlin would come in and be, uh, oh my gosh, Jane Weedlin from the Go Go's. Yes, the punk rock goddess. Um, yeah. Miles My- Copeland told us the story on Rock Tales, not to bore you with this, but he told us do the it. story that they were on tour with the police when the Go Go's realized that uh, that album was. A, a giant hit and the police were super supportive of the ladies and very celebratory in their success and never competitive. You would think that sting would be a giant asshole, but he wasn't. And, hmm. uh, they were, you know, I, they were out there in the world with the police when everything broke open for them. So I thought that was kind of a, a cool thing to hear. That's good. I, I think, I, I think sting gets a bad rap. I think he's cool as shit. I love sting. I think, he's a gr- I think he's a uh, I think he's a brilliant musician. I think he's a great rock star. Uh, he can be pompous or whatever, but hey, I don't have to have dinner with him. He can do whatever he wants. I, I, I think he's a, I think he's true. And his name is Sting, for God's sakes. It's, he plays bass. Looks like he was chiseled out of a Dolph Lundgren stone. The, the dude's got. He's. It's amazing. It's a, he's a perfect rock star. I think. And and uh, and like I said, the songs are amazing. And I think a lot of what they said about the Go Go's, and I think their attitude is probably because they had been in the business longer and they were professionals. They they were uh, uh, long term guys that were a little older, and they they appreciated everything and were more supportive that way too. I would think. I would well, hope. and he he mentioned he mentioned the fact that they were one of the the bands that nobody would sign. And he was just adamant about making sure that they happened because he just saw the magic right away, even when they were playing in little punk rock clubs uh, in Hollywood. Yeah, you can, yeah, can't argue with results. 
<laughs> Do you, off the top of your head, have a favorite Sting acting performance? Is there a favorite Sting theatrical moment for you? Well, here, let me pull up my Gorman Gast reel. Uh, it's got some brimstone and treacle stuff on it. I hope you don't well, mind. Well. Uh, no, I would. You know, I would think uh, you can't go wrong with uh, with him getting stabbed up through the 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 bottom of the jaw in in Dune. That's just the classic over the top sting performance. I think he would be a, he'd be a great James Bond villain or James Bond. I think. Oh, either or. He could be the villain and Martin Short could be James Bond. That would be my, I would write that one. To, I'd write that one tonight. I, you know what? You're so right about him being a Bond villain. All we have to do is give him a gash that runs right down through from the top of his forehead, through the middle of his left eye, down to the middle of his cheek. You know, James had cut him 25 years before and he had waited all this time to get revenge. And now, now he's he got came in too early. <laughs> Uh, hey, oh, you know what was really weird? Uh, uh, speaking of Fade getting stabbed through the bottom of the throat. Sorry if this is no, blinky. No. Uh, I, uh, uh, the show, uh, uh, I Think You Should Leave, has mm -hmm. a sketch uh, with Santa Claus in an action movie. Have you seen it? Okay. This is, all, this is just side information. No, no, no. This is important side information because you're now the third person in the last, I would say, week to tell me about that show. I know what it is. I know that it's out there. I have not participated yet. So this is a wake-up call for me. Go watch that sketch show. I don't watch a lot of shows, but I sat down and watched all of them one night, and it, I loved it. It was great. I'm all, totally on board. Okay, so but, what? So what's the bit again? Anyway, that, so, so here's the side thing. It was a, uh, 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 there's, a, there's a sketch where Santa Claus is in an action movie, and it's very explosive, and then they're interviewing Santa on a press junket later. It's very, it's very funny. I don't want to ruin it. I've already ruined it. Fair enough. But, uh, but I found out that the actor, his name is, uh, uh, is Biff. Not, it's not Biff Jif, because I got corrected on it. Uh, Jif Biff? It's, it's uh, uh, not Biff Jif. Oh, my God. What's the guy's <laughs> name? The guy has this name. And uh, uh, anyway, I found out his name. And that night, I had a very vivid dream that I was on some sort of prank show that had gone wrong. And I had like one of those concrete trowels or a cake trowel. <laughs> and I had stabbed him through the jaw, like fade through the bottom like that. And uh, and that in my dream, I was realizing that I was looking at three to five years in prison for, <laughs> for violently. And I was like, oh, I don't even remember doing it. Why would I do that for some stupid prank show? What was I? Anyway, that's my uh, Biff story. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm Googling it because it's a different letter. And it no, I hear you. I, well, first of all, again, I'm glad that you told me about that show. Uh, again, it's the third time I've, I've heard about it in the last few days. So that means I have to go check that out. Uh, I will also say to you uh, people who made the upcoming Dune, if Sting doesn't have a minor role in that movie, I'm going to be fucking pissed. Uh, he's canon. You might as well try to, you know, just let him be a featured extra. That's all I'm asking for you Dune people. There's nothing wrong with doing uh, something like that. Did, did you find the name? I think you tweeted about it this morning. Biff Whiff. Biff Whiff? Name. Biff Whiff. I'm sorry. I, got, I, I went into a Virgo loop. I had to find out what the guy, what the letter was. Biff Whiff. <laughs> Wait, the guy's what's a, name? What's a Virgo loop? It's uh, it's when you I need to remember something and I can't do anything until I remember it. I love it. Maybe it's more of a blame thing. <laughs> I'm gonna blame a, it on my sign, even though I'm not into that stuff. Unless a, you believe in it, then I'm totally behind it. <laughs> it's a blame loop. Oh, fantastic! Go goes. Uh, I, I will also say about the Go Go's. They just got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Just uh, the just the best. A great show, and you knew every song. Just so, so good. Yeah, I wish that I would have gotten to the chance to see the Go-Go's back in the day at like the Whiskey circa 1978. Like a sweaty you know club. I mean? Like a sweaty club, yeah. Or or to have gone to a party at Disgraceland, which is on Castle by the Hollywood YMCA, where a bunch of the girls lived and a bunch of other punk rock uh, legends lived together in squalor, like Pleasant Gaiman and I think Jane Weedland lived in Disgraceland. Probably. Uh, a yeah. very famous apartment building. Uh, that's I romanticize about living in Hollywood in the late seventies. I I did not. I didn't get here till nineteen ninety. But I I do romanticize about about that place. You know what I mean? There was a house like that. Uh, uh, it was Margaret Cho, Laura Milligan, Greg Barrett, and a uh, 
couple other people lived in there, but it was that was the com that was the comedy. Oh, Janine Garofalo. That was the the comedy hut. Oh wait, now was that comedy hut somewhere near Sunset and Gardner? Do you remember? Yeah, it was, it was way up Gardner. Right. Okay. I because I, I remember going to a party there. Uh, that's the other fun thing about uh, in the days before TikTok houses, collections of TikTok stars living in one house as they do next to uh, my friend Ahmed Zappa. Comedians used to live together <laughs> in big homes. Yeah, like the monkeys. <laughs> like the monkeys. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. The Raw and the Cooked is the second and final studio album by British rock band Fine Young Cannibals. And it was released on January 13, 1989. Four songs from this album appeared on 80s film soundtracks. The Raw and the Cooked is considered to be an eclectic, varied album and takes influences from numerous genres, including Motown, rock, funk, British beat, and pop. It was released in 88 and 89 on IRS Records. Uh, the Raw and the Cooked was a major commercial success, selling over 3 million copies. Numerous singles were released from the album, including two U.S. number ones, She Drives Me Crazy and Good Thing. Fine Young Cannibals, a big IRS uh, act. Did you dig the Fine Young Cannibals? I did. I love the Fine Young Cannibals. Uh, I don't think I, I owned anything. I think the last thing I, I had from with IRS, uh, the IRS label was probably General Public, which was about the same time. Right. I, I, got, a, I got enough Fine Young Cannibals from the radio. They were all over the place. They were ubiquitous. Uh, it, it's, it, I can't believe that uh, that they have not gotten back together after they hijacked the rhythm section of the English Pete for those guys. <laughs> well, we we asked uh, we did we were doing this bit with Miles Copeland about Sting being a, a secret agent. You you pitched him as James Bond. We were doing a bit with uh, with Miles about Sting being a, a secret agent, and then we asked him like, what other uh, what other IRS artist could have been a, a British secret agent. And um, and I pitched out Roland from Fine Young Cannibals, and Miles Copeland said, no, uh, he was basically held up uh, once, and that was it for the Fine Young Cannibals. I mean, I'm botching the story a little bit, but I think that that guy got spooked by fame, and that was it for them. Oh, okay. He just uh, uh, he just didn't want to be approached. He, he just uh, feared... The loss of anonymity. I think the guy had a really crazy fucked up run in with it's either a craze fan or someone who recognized okay. him and robbed him. So he did not dismantle the wow. person with a karate chop uh, and a nunchuck to the face. Uh, and that was enough to spook him out of the business. And that was Jeez. it for the fine young cannibals. Oh, wow. Because they were really? fucking huge. Yeah, they were huge. Wow. I had no idea. That could, I, yeah, that could do it, especially if you're a, <laughs> you're a guy that's saying, Johnny, you're wearing a, wearing a sweater and loafers. It's like, oh my God. It's like, uh, uh, here, what, if you're leaving, here's my wallet. I have some pee for you. He was, he would be the guy I would mug is what I'm saying. <laughs> Go straight, straight for Roland gift. Well, that was kind of Miles Copeland's point was that he, he was an, uh, an easy mark. Easy mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and, but you know what? It's, I would also expect Roland Gift. He, he, he strikes me as a guy. Uh, this is going to sound corny to say it out loud, but he has, he struck me as a kind of guy who had the kind of confidence that you wouldn't want to fuck with. That's what he read to me because yeah. that guy was super fucking cool. I remember trying to dress like the fun young cannibals, but that only lasted for a few days because hard to pull off. No, it's impossible what, to pull off. What's your fat boy slim? Yeah, <laughs> nice, nice trousers. Trousers are hard to pull off. I mean, Marky Smith could do it. That's about it. Well, we also could never find the right clothes. All those British people got cool clothes in London, and there was no way to find that shit in the thrift stores of America. That's for gonna, sure. Going to go through Jarvis Cocker's garbage later. <laughs> See, you could pull that off. You could. You I'm, did you have a mod period? Yeah, of course I did. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I did a did a real sort of like a, a music machine era uh, garage guy for the I guess the late '90s, early 2000s. I was hair was dyed black, wearing turtlenecks everywhere, leather pants. We were in the Bucksotics and playing all over the place. Yeah, well, wait for real. Yeah, 
It's the last, last, last gasp of my youth, I think. I don't, I don't remember the Buxotics. Well, well, tell me about that. The Buxotics was a garage band I was in with Rita from White Trash, uh, Craig Anton on bass, and Matt North on drums. Holy Christ. And we, and we, just, we just played old garage stuff. We had a bunch of originals. We'd mix it up, and we knew just 100 songs. It was great. So we, just, we would all wear black turtlenecks and Rita would wear whatever she wanted. She'd play guitar up front because Rita was in the Pandoras with, uh, with Kim Shattuck years ago. So she had rock cred. Oh, wow. Holy Christ. So were you guys playing covers of like The Seeds and Love and... Oh, 60- yeah. You were? Yeah, yeah. we were doing like uh, uh, creation stuff and just crampsy, crampsy type garage stuff. Uh, uh, old uh, uh, The Action that. Love so, the uh, action, British band people. Just Google the action, British band. Yeah, in you know alarm clocks and you know voices green and purple and blackout accurately. All that whole voices green and purple. Yeah, you got it. And we would just and like I said, we would just we put on a dumb show because we were all we were all comics and we would just have fun and we just play really loud. You know, we played like the last show at Jack Sugar Shack, the last show at Lava Lounge. Wait, played, where where was Opium Jack Sugar Shack? Jack Sugar Shack was used to be next to. Uh, it was on the corner. It's a vacant lot now, but it was on the corner near the Palace on Hollywood and Vine. Oh Christ Almighty! God damn! Yeah, that was a great place for shows. Wow, I've have lost so so much memories. So to much. The sands we, our of time. first gig was at the Martini Lounge. That place is gone. Right, right. We played oh. the Opium Den. That place is gone. We played Mr. T's Bowl. That place is gone. We saw the seeds at Mr. T's Bowl. We went over to watch a, a, a Sky Saxon did a show with the Invisible Men. You remember the Invisible Men? They were a local local garage band. They used to be in the Bomboras, and then the Bomboras had a huge argument, and they split into uh, the Invisible Men and the Lords of Altamont. And the Invisible Men uh, would wear like the bandages around their heads and robes and play. It was really, really fun, just like fast garage type stuff, like the Makers, and uh, and they became Sky Saxon's pickup band when he did a, a a return show out at Mr. T's Bowl, and he was like two feet tall. He looked like a little gnome, <laughs> looked like Charles Manson gnome guy, a little gnome from the Sunset Strip, circa yeah. nineteen sixty seven. Yeah, but it was like, holy shit, it's Sky Saxon from the, seed, <laughs> from the seeds. It was terrific. Yeah, all those venues. I miss Mr. T's Bowl. I miss them all. Isn't Mr. T's Bowl now, not to nerd out on local Los Angeles talk, but people sometimes are interested by it. Isn't it now a fancy bowling alley? Like, it Is was, it? I think it is. I think it was taken over by one of those groups that finds dive bars and flips them and makes them okay. cool again. I think well, that there is an operating bowling alley there now. I'm I'm all for it because because uh, uh, you you would open this big the the bands would be set up and there's a big curtain next to you and you would look pat through the curtain and there's this dusty bowling alley full of <laughs> junk going off into the darkness. It's like here's where the why aren't we set yeah. up in here? It's ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, uh, so if they restored that, that more power to them. That's fantastic. Yeah. But I yeah. Think, oh, uh, and you know what? Uh, uh, I met my wife there. What? I met my wife at Mr. T's Bowl. What? She was she was there with her twin sister to see the mash notes. Do you remember the mash notes? I do not, and I'm supposed they were a Largo, to. They were a Largo era band. They're Holy terrific, Christ. terrific band. So cool, the mash notes. And they, who was uh, in the mash they notes? Pl- uh, uh, they, uh, Ben Boyer, uh, uh, Dave Ra- uh, Dave Roach, and Albert. I can't remember Albert's last name. But they were just like just like a cute Weezer flavored band who who were they played Largo all the time and they were playing Mr T's Bowl and I went with Patton to see him and uh, uh and I had, I, I uh, danced with Patton did I dance with you I danced with her and then later we ended up going out and then I married her <laughs> and how's that going it's it's going great right honey yes honey <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Oh, I'll Venmo her later. That's amazing. The, uh, that was such a great place. I used to go to see Mike Watt every time. Mike Watt from oh. Minutemen. Every time he would play at Mr. T's Bowl, because that was a that was one of the venues that he liked playing at. Uh, it's the cool thing about living in L.A. People, you get to see these fucking people almost any time you want. Patton, I had Patton on this show a couple yeah. weeks ago. He's the best, and he uh, introduced me to a band that I didn't even know about. 
because all I listen to now is sixties garage music. So I don't sometimes. So I don't listen to a lot of new stuff. And he turned me on to this band called Bleached, which are two sisters from Echo Mm -hmm. Park who fucking kill it. Yeah, they're great. They're great. You turned him on to Bleach, I think. Is that right? No, he turned me on to Bleach. He turned you on to Bleach. Yeah, I turned him on to Goat Girl. Okay. You were name dropped a couple times uh, in the my interview with Patton Oswalt because uh, he, I'll name I'll name drop the hell out of that guy. I love him, love him like a brother. But I, I mean, he holds you in such the highest esteem. But d- did you two nerd out over like your music, your love of music off stage? You know, in oh, the yeah. early we, days, we went to see the Pixies together in uh, Adams Morgan back in D.C. Wow. Uh, when we were in Wichita, Kansas, where I got the the wire tape. Uh, Patton and Lord Corette, the headliner, the legendary Lord Corette, Patton and Lord and I went to see Bo Diddley at the outskirts of town with a pickup band next to the rendering plant. It was insane. Wow. Like, just like this, this band, this band made of these guys that all look like they should have been on mini bikes in the Guinness book. <laughs> uh, and they all had hats on, whatever. And then they played for a half an hour. And then all of a sudden they start going, dan ka dan ka dan ka dan dan ka dan ka dan ka dan And then, uh, uh, Bo Diddley walks out wearing slacks with his rectangular guitar and his hat, and he just jams on that for like a half an hour. Just janky, janky, hey, I hope you packed a lunch because Bo's gonna work your ass overtime. Janky, 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 yeah, you better pack a lunch, baby. Half, half an hour, and then, uh, and then after that, he did an hour of just he would just call out like G, and then they would he would just go into his songs, and they're following him. It was amazing. Holy and then after, Christ. Afterwards, uh, uh, there was a line to get autographs, and Bo stood on stage signing autographs, and the ladies could come up on stage, and the guys had to wait off stage. <laughs> they weren't allowed on stage, and Patton goes, "Oh, we got to get out of here. I'll just go, I'm gonna go up. I'll just run up and, and get a thing." And he steps one foot on the stage, and Bo Diddley looks over at him and goes, "Get off the stage!" <laughs> and Patton just, you know, just turns around. Just, get, just didn't miss a beat. Get off the stage. Oh, that would <laughs> that would haunt me until my dying uh, breath. The that fact that that Bo Diddley put me down. I would that would uh, crush my soul. <laughs> it was, he loved. It was great. It was beautiful. Beautiful. Chef's kiss moment. Now we all went to a Denny's. Back. This is back when. This is ninety one. And uh, Garth Brooks was the big thing. And we went to a Denny's after that. And everybody was wearing one of those black Garth Brooks hats, like the kids, the women, oh. uh, black Garth. And we walked in and they did the record scratch. Everybody <laughs> yeah, we're going to get killed in Wichita. Yeah. Breaker one now. There's some two, two nerds in the Denny's <laughs> oh, out yeah, there on get, Route 88. <laughs> hey, get their greasy side up. I'll be there in uh, two shakes. Uh, nerd out. Oh my God, nine one one. Yeah, there are two nerds in the Denny's. I'm eating here right now. <laughs> <laughs> that was quick. Oh my God, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Um, I'll give you my quick Garth Brooks thing before we move on to the next IRS uh, act uh, from roughly summer 1993 to the very beginning of uh, 1995. I was the happy hour and ladies' night DJ at Denim and Diamonds in Santa Monica, California. So three nights a week, only because a friend of mine ran the club. And he's like, dude, you can make a lot of money coming in. You be the DJ. You just play this fucking shit. At that time, Denim and Diamonds was the number one line dance club in Southern California. I would wear my fishbone or my Primus or my Rush t-shirts, but I had to wear a hat while I was behind uh, the glass. And every single night of Denim and Diamonds was ended with the Garth Brooks song, The Dance. I was subjected to so much Garth Brooks that uh, I have uh, an incurable uh, amount of Garth Brooks poisoning running through my blood. Oh, you do, so you don't like uh, you didn't get into his Chris Gaines phase. <laughs> I you couldn't try- wait to never hear pop country ever again in my life. He's I, I uh, he's one of those guys where uh, I I want to like him, then I hate him, then I hate him, then I like him, uh, then I like him, uh, I, I want to hate him, uh, but I like him. Uh, sort of hate him. <laughs> Not sure if I like this guy. Uh, he's all right. He's one of those guys. He seems like a nice guy, but it's like stop. Pick one. I know it's like it's Tough like heel he, turns. 
you, you find out that he's donated like $25 million to every blind child in the South. And you're I like, think, God bless I, you. I and think he's you, a good guy. Yes. But then you see him swinging across an open stadium, you know, on a flaming rope or something, trying to be kissed. And you're like, oh, calm down. But what, God damn it. One of these it's going to work. <laughs> People are going to go, yeah, all right. I'll take it now. <laughs> Oh, but you have no idea how much. I had to play Garth Brooks 10 times a shift uh, because of all of his fucking giant hits. But the dance, that was the big one. That was the, also the big slow dance to end the night because at Denim and Diamonds, the men want the final act being the slow dance so they can grab and then they say, come back to my place. You understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was my job to get people to that point. Uh, I was responsible for so many people hooking up who should have never hooked up in, in life, but that was what was happening in, at the at the corner of Ocean Park and 30th in the mid-90s. Pilot of airwaves, <laughs> this is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you do your best. I've been putting all the moves on this uh, secretary from El Cerritos, and I feel like I got a chance if you get this better closer with the dance by. 20 bucks, man. Give me hey, put twenty uh, bucks go, in that jar. Let me go hit a bank machine. <laughs> I, don't I don't know why that guy was Elvis, <laughs> drunk businessman at the uh, the airport at the Hyatt. Uh, yeah, that's well. That that was the crowd of Denim and Diamonds. Trust me. Wall of Voodoo was an American rock band from Los Angeles, California, and are best known for their 1983 hit Mexican Radio. Wall of Voodoo had, it, had its roots in Acme Soundtracks, a film score business started by Stan Ridgway, the band's vocalist. Ridgway's office was across the street from the Hollywood punk club The Mask, and Ridgway was soon drawn to the emerging punk rock new wave scene in the late 1970s. Mark Morland, the guitarist for The Skulls, began jamming with Ridgway at the Acme Soundtracks office. And the soundtrack company soon morphed into a new wave band in 1977 with the addition of Skulls members Bruce Moreland on bass and Chaz Gray on keyboards, along with Joe Nanini on drums. The first lineup of Wall of Voodoo was born. The band went on to release their first EP in 1980, Wall of Voodoo. You love Wall of Voodoo, don't you? I do. I really love Wall of Voodoo. They made the. Uh, uh, they kind of made me who I am a little bit. Okay, t- so tell me. Oh well, I, I just I, I liked them from 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 the first time I saw them. I saw the Mexican radio thing when MTV happened, of course. Uh, and I went out and I grabbed it because I loved it. I love the 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 twang. I'm a big I'm a big guitar twang guy. I like good twangy guitars. And it was it seemed like a Western version of Devo to me. This the same kind of angular new wave stuff that I loved, but it had it, you know it had a, an old sort of bluesy country Western feel to it. And I loved to Stan talking out of the side of his mouth. I mean, and I still talk like that now because of Stan Ridgway. He was such a great guy to ape. And uh, they had a sense of humor, uh, all that all that good stuff. And like I said, I was a kid in Pennsylvania and I was just, it was it was exotic and weird to me. And But it was also high quality and it stood up to repeated listening and stuff. Uh, I remember after, I guess after... They broke up, or they broke up, or Stan Ridgway left, and Andy Preboy came in to replace him. And I remember they were playing at a pl- club called Gerard's in Baltimore. I was still living at my parents' house at this point, and I was like, oh, "I got to go down and see Walt Voodoo at Gerard's." And I went down to this place and found parking, and my they wouldn't let me in because I was like nineteen, so I couldn't get in. And I remember watching. They had one of those like ground level windows that they would have in old sitcoms. You can see legs going by. I looked down through there and I could see Andy Preboy's legs on stage. He's skinny legs and he's pointy like Danny Elfman shoes. He's Jack Skellington legs. And uh, every now and then, I would, and you could hear the you hear the music coming through the window. But that was the only wall of voodoo that I could see. Was uh, them through the window, and then later I'm hanging out at the guy's house. It was great. <laughs> I know. So, uh, Life is weird. It was. It was weird. It, it, uh, uh, just that that circle was a was a nice reminder that I was on the right track. <laughs> I I once shared a joint in my own bedroom with Lindsey Buckingham. Oh man! Yeah, 
<laughs> the guy from uh, the guy from Buckingham Palace. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that guy. He was also in Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and he was dating Anne Hayes, who was doing a play with me, circa 1993. Jesus, what was the name of the play? Uh, it was called Choices, and it was written by my dear friend uh, Betsy Thomas, and we did it at that little tiny. Uh, and it was about a girl going through an abortion, and we did it at that little. It was a little tiny box space in that weird, shitty building on Coenga, right by the 101. It's this big gray apartment con- uh, building, like an old Art Deco building. I mean, literally almost at the the overpass. Okay. I th- yeah, and, I think I know that one. Yeah. It, it, you've passed it four kabillion times yeah. and never looked at it. But in the bottom, there was, a, there was a black box space, just like the shitty theaters on Santa Monica and Wilcox. But that's where we did it. And after opening night... And the, 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 it was like 30 seats, not not even 99 seats, like 30 seats. So uh, the whole entire show, I'm like, Lindsey Buckingham is literally six feet away from me right now. So after the show, after the premiere, the, the opening night, we had a party at our house in Hollywood. Uh, Lindsey came back to the house. We ended up in my bedroom. He pulled out a joint. Lindsey Buckingham pro-weed. This is the early 90s, so this is pro-professional weed. Uh, I, it got me so ridiculously high. I spent the next half hour babbling to Lindsay Buck- Buckingham about the importance of Iron Maiden because I had a six foot <laughs> Iron Maiden tour poster on my wall. And I was like, you don't understand. They're really important. Like they, they don't even have to play in America. They're so huge in South America and Central America, all over the world. Lindsay, you, you got to understand that, you know, they really know how to work a crowd. And he was like, he was just gracious and kind, Very, and, yeah, yeah. and he never once said, "Dude, shut the fuck up." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Lindsay, you know what you should do is get, uh, get a pilot's license. <laughs> that way you can fly a fleetwood Mac like all over the plane. <laughs> You're like Flywood Mac. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I've I've been in those weird situations where you're smoking pot with a celebrity. Like, why am I? Just don't, just don't say, hey, wow, you're Skippy from Family Ties. Just don't say it. That's all you have to do. Just don't say it. Well, my friends and I had that house. It was near Sunset in Fairfax. It was a craftsman home. So I have also had the experience, which I know you'll understand, of like, what the fuck is Andy Dick doing in the, my backyard? <laughs> he, uh, uh, I, 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 let me start by saying I love Andy Dick. Yes. Uh, uh, that's the legal disclaimer that you have to start every Andy Dick story with. But I had a friend who was, uh, he was one of the producers on Web Soup. And uh, 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 do you remember Web Soup? It was a show yes. on G4. It was hosted yes. by Chris Hardwick. It oh, was yeah. a Tosh, Tosh style thing. It was I think me. I submitted a packet for that. So yes, oh, okay. I remember. Uh, you probably didn't get hired because they couldn't afford us. But it was me, it was me and Mike Henry and Jonah Ray. And it could not have been more fun. It was a delight. And Chris Hardwick was the host. It was a, a blast. And one of the hosts was telling me, I saw him at Vitello's for a comedy night with Wendy, at Wendy Liebman's show mm-hmm. a, year, a couple years ago. And he goes, uh, yeah, I was, uh, Andy Dick comes up for some reason. He goes, I was sitting over uh, with some friends of mine over in uh, Encino and we're just in his kitchen and we're playing cards and the uh, door opens and uh, Andy Dick walks in and goes, hey guys. <laughs> and uh, so we get him a drink and he sits down and you, you know, deal him in. He's just sort of like all over the place and we're all sort of talking to him and He's all right. Well, 15 minutes later, he gets up and he leaves. And we all look at each other like, do you know him? Nobody knew him. He was just walking through backyards and saw people in this playing cards and walked into the into the house. He didn't know anyone <laughs> like he did my house. <laughs> yeah, I've, dri- I've driven him home a couple of times. You got to have a driving Nandy Dick home story oh, or you're not allowed in the guild. <laughs> Oh my God! Inside baseball talk here with yeah, Blaine sorry. and Brendan. No, no, yeah, I, didn't, I love. Didn't it. mean to derail it. Didn't mean no, to this is this is what I want. This is what I want to subject people to. Uh, honest to God, this is gold for me <laughs> because uh, we all have them. <laughs> we all have Andy Dick stories. <laughs> can I here? I'll segue uh, back into a Dick story by saying that there's a Wall of Voodoo song. They do a cover of Ring of Fire. Do you know their cover of Ring of Fire? I do know their cover of Ring of Fire. Yes. And there's an embarrassing thing that that boys of a certain age know that it was the song that was playing in the background of a scene in a porn movie. <laughs> and people hear it and they go, hey, that was in that porn movie. And it's like if you mention Wall of Voodoo, it's a weird thing. But guys will go, oh, yeah, there was that 
Ring of Fire in that porn movie. <laughs> and you either go, yeah, I saw it, or you go, well, I've, I'm, I've, I've never, uh, I've, I've never seen pants, pants in the shower. <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, it was. Uh, but I remember uh, I was, my brother had this tape, and uh, I was watching this, like, like, wow, this is weird. And then uh, the music comes on. I'm like, that sounds like, sounds like Mark Moreland. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden, oh, I fell into a ring of fire. And so, oh, it's a wall of voodoo. Oh, my God. There's that association I have to get around. Did, did the porn film just, just steal it? Did they just not even ask? Did they just use it without uh, getting any permission, do you think? Yeah, yeah they probably they probably <laughs> yank a lot of things for those movies. We'll be right back. Uh, oh! And, he, <laughs> and here's a, here's a happy uh, wall of voodoo story. Uh, uh, like I said, I was in uh, White Trash Wins Lotto with Andy Preboy, uh, who's a, 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 a great guy, very brilliant. And he was doing, after White Trash Wins Lotto fell apart, he went back to uh, doing workshopping songs for new songs for it that he was, uh, and working out new singers. Stephanie Courtney was singing with him. And uh, he was doing these shows at the Knitting Factory. And um, he did a, a couple of, he did a bunch of his songs and he was doing Wall of Voodoo covers and he did Business of Love and Let Me Come Up and Sing Business of Love at the Knitting Factory with him. And it was a nice little, another nice full circle thing of being able to sing a Wall of Voodoo song on stage with a Wall of Voodoo guy. It was a, a, a genuine thrill. I, oh, I peed a little. <laughs> at the Knitting Factory in Hollywood? Knitting Factory in Hollywood, yeah. God damn it. That is that was, amazing. What's in one. that space right now? I don't know. COVID twenty eight. <laughs> <laughs> that place. That place has the quietest parking garage. Oh, I got it. It's one of those places where you go to the parking garage and you can't hear anything except your nervous system. It's like <laughs> it's like it's like it's painted in Vanta black for your ears. You just cannot hear a thing in that parking garage. Who knows what they're doing with it? Maybe that's where Jay Johnston is hanging out. Uh, hiding out <laughs> yeah he's he's on on the lamb <laughs> not, not in mexico he's hiding in the old knitting factory galaxy six cinema complex people, it's funny every time i i meet up with people there's there's usually a couple of a couple of minutes of conversation where do you think he is i don't know he's in canada i i think he's in los angeles i saw i saw his car the other day no no I, there's another car that looks like his <laughs> oh my god that, that the the scout without the uh the the roof on it that he would get thrown from. Oh man! <laughs> on highways, <laughs> I found an old flyer for the HBO space back from when I was repped at Gersh and was doing a, a one man show. So the lineup was like: one night it was me, the next night it was Doug Benson, the next night it was Super Nerds, Patton and Brian, and then the next night it was Jay Johnston with his show "Storming the Capitol." Oh. Circa 1999. So he was prepping and getting ready to overthrow the government even back then. Okay, real quick before I let you go, uh, let me get your quick, just quick thoughts on some of the bands that we didn't have time to cover properly. Uh, other IRS records bands, uh, such as Oingo Boingo. Uh, I love Oingo Boingo. I'm delighted for some reason for Danny Elfman's success is there's got to be a word for when you're proud of someone that you were a fan of, that you were, that you're happy to see getting every drop of, of his due. I always thought Danny Elfman was great. Um, uh, one of my favorite IRS label records was, uh, Clark Kent and Clark Kent was Stuart Copeland's alter ego. And he released this song of, it sounds like my, my favorite police songs because they were always the, the I always liked Stuart songs and the police and uh, he recorded everything, played it all himself. And uh, uh, there was an interesting connection with that too, because he worked with Stan Ridgeway from wall of voodoo on don't box me in, which was uh, uh, from the movie Rumblefish, which Stuart Copeland did the soundtrack for. And I remember that was, a, 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 I was working at listening booth, the record store in the York mall. And uh, that soundtrack came in and I knew that Stuart Copeland had written it. And I listened to the soundtrack for years before I ever saw the movie. So when I saw the movie, it was like, oh, I guess this is the scene for this. But it was a, a very, another, another uh, example of backing into something because of, of IRS records. Isn't that amazing? But, uh, yeah, it really is. 
my all my XTC stuff was because of IRS. Like I said, Erg of Music War. If you've never checked it out, if if you're listening and you've never seen it, it's an incredible documentary concert film that has XTC, uh, Gary Newman, The Go Go, Scafish, X. Uh, Oingo Boingo, a uh, 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 wall of voodoo's in there, and and it's backed by the police at the end, at the, when they were still like kind of like coming out of the clubs. It's just a, a, a great document film. I imagine you were a fan of the Alarm. I love the Alarm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it all, all this all this stuff. My awakening with IRS coincided with MTV being born, which was great because you could see these bands. And uh, like I sent you a video last night of that that band Torch song, a, a, a no hit wonder that went nowhere. But they had this one song that grabbed me. Yeah. And I spent twelve dollars on an album. and It was that one good song. You know how that worked. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what you had to do in the old days before your your precious Apple tunes, whatever you call it, where you could just buy one at a time. Where's the fun in that? That's not an album. Well, that's, my, picking, that's cherry picking <laughs> my move on that. If I knew that there was a record that only had one song that I liked, that was my Columbia house selection oh. uh, under the name Cal McMoo or James Tiberius Kirk. <laughs> uh, and, and then I would just, you know, redo it again, you know, just come up with a different fake name. And, and that, but that, that was my rule. I like supporting the bands that I loved, but if someone put out a record that only had one good song, Columbia house. Yeah. That, well, yeah. It was, uh, they're coming to get you, you know, they still have a record of all that stuff. As soon as they get it over to Linux, your ass is grass and they're the lawnmower. Uh, I worked at a record store, so I got an employee discount so I could get albums, uh, with one hit on them for, you know, employee discount. It was just horrible. Uh, the, but I've the, also also let me like get stuff out of my system like Spirogyra and Shadowfax. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why am I getting Kataro? Why am I getting any of this stuff? Oh my God! The uh, the employee discount at Tower Westwood was um, was stealing. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then our our manager basically said, "Look, just don't rob us blind." Yeah, it was hard for me to get out with uh, records down my pants because I looked like I had sat on one of those graduation hats. <laughs> I remember I, was, know I have a tiny butt. I was subbing at Tower Sunset uh, one day because Tower Westwood was my very first job in Los Angeles just for four months uh, at the end of 1990. But I was at Tower Sunset one day and the, um, the, the security dude at the door said, hey, if you're going to steal the Led Zeppelin box set tonight, grab me one. <laughs> so okay there it was all right la last question last irs theme question we just had the fabulous Susanna hoffs on the podcast blaine the bangles i know you love the bangles love the bangles love the bangles she's got a signature rickenbacker Susanna hoffs <laughs> yes she does well but you know what now i'm realizing even in the course of this conversation that irs really actually captured a lot of those bands that were heavily influenced by 60s garage music Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, Peter Zaremba and the whole 120 minutes was uh, uh, was like getting a, a some sort of flare gun from an island offshore to let you know <laughs> what was coming in and to what bottles to look for. I mean, it's how I found out about the Dukes of Stratosphere and how I made the XTC connection. Right. And, you know, and, and uh, then they would show you weird videos that you would normally never see by bands that you had heard of. It's like, oh, OK, there's the Lords of the New Church. They, it, some of it would go into the regular rotation. But uh, uh, it was just a, a godsend, again, for a kid in Dallas sound. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, dude, uh, I've kept you for more than an hour. All you did was crush it today for round three. Um, you're the fucking best. What are, what are you doing right now? Where can people find you? Uh, where can people uh, donate money to the cause? Where can they absorb all things Blaine Kapatch? Uh You can follow me on Twitter, Blaine Kapatch on Twitter. Uh, you can listen to me play Dungeons and Dragons with Brian Posehn and friends on the Nerd Poker Podcast, 10 Years Strong. Uh, I'll be at the Moon Tower Comedy Festival in Austin at the uh, the end of September at some point. Uh, and I'll be doing some dates with Patton in the fall. Uh, but yeah, and uh, I'm uh, Stacy Keach and I are going to break the land speed record at Bonneville this weekend. So come on out and root us on. Stacy's a monster behind the wheel. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. And also parts of Monday, 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 and possibly Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. <laughs> Raceway Park. Oh, dude, this is all that I want to do. I wish we had our own show. You're the absolute yeah. best. Yeah, it's the more the more you talk, the more you want to talk about. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, you're the best. So, dude, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was and again. It was great to see you at at, uh, at Vons the other day. <laughs> that place is uh, is weird. But oh. uh, 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 hey, uh, uh, anytime. Let's we can talk about the Pixies. Talk about Stone Roses, Britpop. I'll talk about Supergrass until the cows come home. Okay, then then here's what I'm doing. I'm saving the Britpop category for you. That's yeah, it. Oh, do, do it. Do uh, it. I'm making this declaration now. The next time I talk to Blaine, we will be doing a deep dive into Britpop. Cool, cool. Hey, have you have you listened to Goat Girl? Did I tell you about Goat Girl before? You did. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely, a hundred percent, and yes. New album is out. Uh, that came. I guess it came out last November, but it's uh, just as good as the first one. It's fantastic. Fuck yeah, that's my tip. Thank you. Thank you. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening, liking, subscribing, telling your friends. So many great guests coming down the pike, but of course, you know who could beat Blank Patch. Uh, and of course, the Brando cast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. You walk, tug on the line